the Jewish views on the K's supermarket fire. We learn how the community rallies round at a time of need. Comedian Rachel Krieger tells us about her forthcoming fringe show, It's No Job for a Nice Jewish Girl, and how the fundraising efforts of a group of London cab drivers has made an extraordinary difference to a Norwood care home. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Jewish communities have reached out to help dozens of families who are affected by the fire which engulfed the 24-storey Grenfell Tower block in West London. Holland Park Synagogue issued an urgent appeal to members for donations. Synagogues as far away as Hertfordshire joined in the relief effort, with Boreham Woodshaw starting a communal collection. World Jewish Relief put out a statement saying the outpouring of love and support from the Jewish community had been remarkable. There was also a rapid response from the community to the devastating fire in Golders Green at Kay's, the kosher supermarket. An online Facebook campaign set up by, amongst others, Sarah Benbassett, is raising funds and collecting items for those who lost possessions. Thanks to one couple's pet dog, which raised the alarm, there were no fatalities or serious injuries. The Jewish volunteer ambulance service, Hatzola, and the neighbourhood watch group, Shomrim, helped the emergency services during the blaze and its aftermath. The London Mayor, Sadiq Khan, has raised concerns about the forthcoming anti-Israel Al-Houts Day march with the Metropolitan Police Commissioner. Mr Khan has come under pressure to block the event from taking place, with the likelihood of those taking part waving the flags of terror groups Hamas and Hezbollah. The Mayor has said that the power to ban the march lies with the Home Secretary. It comes as Mr Khan reveals he sought Israel's advice on fighting terror after the spate of attacks in Manchester and London. He gave an exclusive interview to Jewish News, revealing that he and his colleagues had learnt lots of things from contacts with Tel Aviv. And he gave the keynote address at Jewish Care's annual dinner when he said the rise in anti-Semitism was unacceptable in London in 2017. Four rabbis have taken part in a ceremony attended by the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh in memory of 18 children who were killed 100 years ago after a German bomber specifically targeted a school in Poplar, East London. Just one month later, the royal family announced they were changing their name from Saxe-Coburg-Gotha to Windsor. And community organisations are backing a campaign by a Jewish historian for headstones to be put over the graves of the Moss family from Bethnal Green, many of whom were killed by a German bomb also 100 years ago. Stan Kay wants to see simple stones erected over the plots in Plashet Jewish Cemetery, which currently only have a metal marker. The mother, Rebecca Moss, and four of her seven children, all girls, died. And finally, a 23-year-old Israeli woman was arrested for removing her clothes at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. The woman, who's believed to be mentally ill, took her clothes off on the women's side and then started walking towards the men's section. She's not been named and no reason has been given for her actions. That's the News Roundup this week. Now here's Andrew with the sport. Thanks, Viv. Israel produced one of their worst performances of recent years after they suffered a stunning 3-0 home defeat by Albania in a 2018 World Cup qualifier. Manager Elisha Levy said, I didn't think we could lose like this at home, but that's football and we must look ahead. Lance Stroll became the second youngest point scorer in Formula 1 history when he finished his home Canadian Grand Prix in ninth place. The 18-year-old, in his first season with Williams, said, 
It's special. It feels so good in so many ways, words can't really describe it. And finally, Idan Sharav and Sachar Ruberg will form the first ever Israel team to take part at the Snooker World Cup in China next month. 25-year-old Sharav, who has an Israeli father and Scottish mother, left Israel as a three-year-old. He said, it's something I can't wait to do. I think it will also be a really great honour to get out there and represent Israel alongside Sachar. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed, and welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is news editor Justin Cohen and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. And Justin, for once, we're not going to start off by looking at the front page. We're going to dive straight into the middle of the paper, and we're going to look at what's happening with the Al-Quds March. Yes, this Sunday, as in past years, thousands of people will march through central London as part of the annual Al-Quds Day Parade. This has caused a great deal of consternation for many years now among the Jewish community, particularly because of the fact that Hezbollah flags have been openly waved on the streets of London. Part of the problem here, and the crux of the problem really, is the fact that the the Hezbollah has both a military wing and a political wing, and only the military wing is prescribed, and therefore there's been a bit of a loophole, which has meant that sometimes this flag has been waved. Thousands of people have now signed a petition calling for the parade to be banned. A total of 8,000 people, actually at the time of recording this, have called for it to be banned. Plus, there's going to be a massive counter-demonstration led by the Zionist Federation. For his part, the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has said that he's going to raise this with the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, and it's not actually within his powers to ban it, as some people have called for. But he said that that would fall with either the Met Police Commissioner or the government, and I I think actually a a combination of of the two. Yeah, I think the important thing about the Al-Quds Parade is that there are plenty of people there with video cameras and people on their phones taking pictures and making sure that if there are any questionable incidents, any Hezbollah flags, anyone chanting anti-Semitic things, they're caught on camera and they're reported to the police and action is taken and things are followed up. Because this protest every year is only going to be stopped if there's clear evidence that, that it's a problem and that there are repeat offenders. But isn't the problem as well that one of the biggest issues that people have stressed is the flying of the Hezbollah flag? And I distinctly remember when we had this conversation last year, the question's got to be, how do you stop people flying a flag? Well, you can't stop them initially flying that flag, I guess. The the organisers have a responsibility to make sure that they've instructed their people not to be flying the flag of an organisation like this. But beyond that, if there are signs of these flags being held and being waved, the police will be there. As, as Jack says, there will be recordings, no doubt, both by the public and by officials. And action has to be taken, not necessarily even afterwards, but there and then. OK, well, also in the news this week, we've obviously seen that fire, unfortunately, has wreaked total devastation to the people of Grenville Tower. But what have the community been doing in response to that? Yeah, the community has organised itself fairly spontaneously synagogues, in particular Holland Park Synagogue, which is quite close to the incident, and other organisations like World Jewish Relief and even the chief rabbi has come out and commented. And they've collected lots of items to help the victims of this incident. 
and they've also contributed to the fundraising campaign. I think what's very interesting about this is no one really prompted anyone to to start any campaigns. It was just local communities kind of organising themselves. Even on Thursday morning, uh, when I opened up my emails, I was inundated with emails of pictures of collections and people fundraising and people telling me about where they're where they're meeting to to donate all their clothes and shoes. It's been very spontaneous and very heartwarming for the community. It certainly has, and it just goes to show that in times of terrible strife that people do have the ability to pull together. Yes, the images coming out of West London this week were absolutely heart-wrenching. I think everyone can relate to what's happened here. It plays into our greatest fears that a fire would take hold of our homes in the middle of the night, ravish everything that we hold dear. And the way the community has pulled together the number of appeals. Uh, I heard in one case that people were queuing outside uh, Borenwood Synagogue this week. The community had also pulled together in the wake of another fire in Golders Green last weekend at Kay's Kosher Supermarket on Golders Green Road. A couple were alerted to this fire by their dog, who sadly perished in the fire. But in the wake of that, the community really did come together. A Facebook group was set up by by local Jewish people to support, to collect toiletries, other possessions and so on. And we now have learned that a Jewish businessman in the area has actually offered the couple jobs uh, as well as a new home. It's quite incredible. Amazing. We are going to learn more about that particular fire later on in the programme. However, let's look now at the front page because the front page reads, Too close for comfort. Jewish voters help stall London Labour landsliders. May's future hangs in the balance. Of course, this is all relating to the 2017 general election. And my goodness me, what a turbulent election it was. Yes, I don't think any of us, when we sat down to record the podcast last week, could have imagined. Uh, And obviously, Jeremy Corbyn, we possibly expected him to still be in the position of Labour leader after this election, but we certainly didn't expect him to be in in these circumstances where he's actually strengthened his position. Of course, there are now going to be questions over what this means for future relations between the party and the Jewish community. It would seem that Jeremy Corbyn is is here to stay for the moment. And so some people will, will be suggesting, of course, that we should perhaps approach relations with his office and, and with the leadership in a slightly different way. It's, it's my opinion that it's always been the case that we should, as a community, accept and acknowledge whenever we see some positive developments in the fight against anti-Semitism. But this election result shouldn't change the fact that we still need to fight at every turn for what is morally right. And that is that that zero tolerance for anti-Semitism means not just rhetoric, but it has to be uh, borne out in action. And I think one of the first things that one of the newly re-elected MPs, Tulip Sadiq, said to us was that she wants to see a new independent inquiry. Obviously, we had all the controversy with the Chakrabarti report. She wants a new inquiry to try and get to the bottom of this and try and sort this out. And I think, you know, just because Jeremy Corbyn has strengthened, we can only hope that actually rather than making it less likely that that relations will be improved, that actually he sees this as, as an opportunity to use his extra strength to help improve relations and to do what's needed. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. Jeremy Corbyn did strengthen his position. But if you look at a lot of MPs who were highly critical of Corbyn, such as West Streeting, Tulip Sadiq stood down from her cabinet position when she was in the shadow cabinet, they all massively increased their majorities. So in many respects, they actually rode the wave of this increase in support for Labour as well. And in return, 
Jeremy Corbyn has said that these MPs are welcome back in the shadow cabinet and that there is, you know, he wants unity in the party. So there is also an opportunity for rapprochement in many ways. There are plenty of MPs who can easily use their, their newly increased support to get new cabinet positions, for example. But it might be issues like the possible expulsion of Ken Livingston or any more rearing the head of anti-Semitism that might threaten their any new positions that they might be able to get. It's certainly very interesting times for British politics, isn't it, Justin? It certainly is. And obviously the community was focusing very much on what was going on in, in areas of London. Four seats could have been very interesting, perhaps, if not for the anti-Semitism scandal. The fact that the Labour tidal wave of additional support it wasn't quite enough to turn Finch and Golders Green and Hendon red, but they, but both the candidates in those areas, Jewish Labour movements, Jeremy Newmark and Mike Katz, did very, very well and got very close. There are obviously many questions now about whether if the anti-Semitism issue hadn't have been there, if Jeremy Corbyn's record on the Middle East hadn't have been a factor, could they actually have won those seats and actually moved Jeremy Corbyn even closer to being able to potentially discuss a possible coalition himself. Extraordinary times. And obviously this story will carry on unfolding as the weeks go on, but I'm afraid that is where we have to leave it for a look at the paper this week. But thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, on a slightly smaller scale compared to what we've seen in West London in the past week, but all the same, a fire broke out at Kay's supermarket in Golders Green on the morning of Sunday the 11th of June, as you've just been hearing. A total of 95 firefighters tackled the blaze, and in the process, five people were rescued. It's terribly unfortunate how timely this particular story is, but all the same, something that volunteers trying to help those affected by the Tower Block fire in West London can relate to is the enormous effort by the community to help others. In the case of those involved in the Golders Green Fire, they have the likes of Sarah Benbosat to thank, who was one of the coordinators of the aid effort. I've been speaking to Sarah and I started by asking her to tell us what moved her to help in the first place. I think first of all, because it's local, my first initial thought was when I saw the campaign that Debbie Warmberg started on Facebook, I thought, OK, I can donate stuff and maybe I can help with picking up stuff and delivering it. At that point, I didn't realise how involved I was going to get. I just thought it was important because I've met people who are walking around with nothing. Nothing. I think it's important to stress how involved you have become because... We find ourselves at the moment sitting in your beautiful flat in Golders Green, but your beautiful flat has been turned into what can only be described as a storage facility for the most extraordinary amount of clothing, bedding, toiletries, home accessories, anything you could possibly think of is here. And I'm guessing it's the efforts of the community that have rallied round to donate this. Yeah, the community have really stepped up. We didn't expect so many items. And this, what you're seeing here, is only half of what we received this morning. We've already given out a lot of things. Woodside Park Synagogue has also given us a storage room. So we've filled that up as well. So what you're seeing here is half of what we had originally. Now, for those who maybe aren't completely familiar with what happened at Kay's, the Kay's supermarket caught fire. There were people affected by it. Five people were rescued, as I said in the introduction to this. And 
How has it affected them in terms of their homes? People have lost their homes, I'm guessing. Right. So the people I've met so far have got nothing. I met a couple last night who were planning on sleeping in a bus shelter. As she has a disability, she needs to be local to her university, which is Middlesex University, and Barnet Housing had nothing for them. So we put them up in a hotel. They were walking... Who's we, sorry? Myself and Debbie Warmberg, the lady who started this campaign. They were wearing the clothes, their pyjamas, that they were wearing on the night of the fire. I've met another lady who I took a supper to her hotel last night. She has a four-year-old child. Again, she was walking around in clothes that had been donated for her. People have really left with nothing. Well, based on the way that we are talking, it would be remiss of us not to draw comparisons. Even on a slightly smaller scale, it is still just as comparable to what has gone on in Kensington this week. Obviously, I'm talking about the Grenville Tower fire that broke out there. And obviously, the relief efforts for them has been very similar in terms of the community rallying together, trying to provide clothes and all the accessories I mentioned before to those who have frankly lost everything. And it's a real harsh reminder of just how devastating fire can be. It is. I think it's very scary that we can go to bed one night and be complaining that we need more clothes that we need anything and wake up in the morning and have nothing and it also i think it helps people to remember that we've got to count ourselves as very lucky for what we have got 100 percent. and because you mentioned kensington i just want to mention that we have so many items that we really want to whatever is left somehow help the people in kensington if we can well, I know that the people of Kensington, I'm sure, will be very grateful to you for that. And we'll go into that in just a moment. But what I do want to establish is how all of this came together. Because you mentioned you and also Debbie, who founded all of this and got this all going. What happened in terms of the community coming to you in terms of actually bringing their stuff that they no longer need to you? How did you get the word out there for that? It started off as a very small campaign campaign. And it spiralled and spiralled. And then it went to WhatsApp group. The organisation Gift heard about it as well. There is another lady involved called Michelle. She's also been very busy WhatsApping people. And that's what happened. It just kind of spiralled and spiralled. The community have really stepped up. And I think what has struck me most is that people think we live in a very insular society here, especially in Golders Green. And we only help our own. And most of the people who were affected by the fire and who have lost everything, they aren't Jewish. And it doesn't matter. We're helping everyone. And I think that's what's really struck me the most. What would you say has been the learning curve for you, though, for getting involved in this? I'm assuming that this is not necessarily your day job, gathering people's unwanted belongings and then distributing to those who need them. So what would you say that you have learned from this? Get a bigger house. (laughs) (laughs) I see. Um, (laughs) What have I learned for this is that in times of need, people are there. Yeah, people are there. That's what I've really learned. In times of need, people really step up. Well, let us look at, as you've already alluded to, how this might work in terms of helping those who have been affected by the Tower Block fire in Kensington. Who are you in talks with in terms of getting whatever is left over to them? And when would you say is your cutoff point? When are you looking to say, okay, well, this is everyone who has benefited from this donation for Golders Green has been and gone. Now it's time to hand it over to Kensington. So we have been in touch. Debbie mainly has been in touch with a with a rabbi who has contacts in Kensington in the Jewish community. And he is in trying to arrange 
for things to be taken from Woodside Park to Kensington. I think our cutoff point is we hope that in a week's time, everyone will have been rehoused and everyone will have everything that they need that we can give them. Whatever we have left over after that, if it hasn't gone to Kensington, we will be sending to charity. There'll be those who are listening to this who have thought maybe they weren't aware of the work you're doing, gathering all of these belongings and these goods for those affected by fire, either for Golders Green or indeed for Kensington. And they probably want to help and they think, well, actually, I've got something that I want to give and I want to donate. What should they do? What would you advise them to do? Okay, at the moment, as you can see, we've been inundated with things. We can't... Well, I can see that. I don't know whether the listeners (laughs) can see it. (laughs) The listeners can't see. But we've been inundated with things and we can't physically accept anything else. So what I'm what we are saying to people is to hang on to your things for another few days. We will be putting on the Facebook the specific items that we need. The Facebook group is called Help Those Affected by the London Fire. We'll be putting on their specific items as we need them. What we will probably need over the next few days is volunteers who can help deliver the big items, furniture, bedding, these kind of things to people's homes once they have been rehoused. That's probably what we will need over the next few days. So how would you like them to get in contact? They can call me. They can call me or send me a a Facebook message. So what we'll do then in that case is we'll put details on our website, jewishviews.co.uk, and how they can contact you. Just finally, anything you want to say to your community which has responded in the most extraordinary way? Just thank you to everyone. You've all been amazing. Just the way people have come in and just got down to work without any thanks, without any begging on my part, people have just responded in a massive, massive way. So thank you all. Truly is unfathomable how fire has just devastated London in one way or another in the past week. The comfort that I hope that we can take from this is that people such as Sarah Bembasat talking to me there play their part to help in relief efforts. For more information, including that link that I referred to in the interview of how you can help those affected by the fire in West London at the Grenfell Tower block, please do go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and retired audio book reader, Denise Asserson. They'll be discussing the sense of community spirit. Plus, Diana Toman is away this week, so I will be speaking to Malcolm Shafron, Honorary Secretary of the LTFUC, or London Taxi Drivers Fund for Underprivileged Children, to talk about how they recently funded some new specialist equipment for one of Norwood's care homes. But first, comedian Rachel Krieger will be appearing at this year's Edinburgh Fringe with previews in July of her new show, It's No Job for a Nice Jewish Girl. I know I can't believe we're talking about the Edinburgh Fringe either already, but it's only a matter of weeks away if you think about it. Arts editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Rachel to find out what we can expect from her show. And Kate started by asking Rachel to tell us when she first discovered she was funny. I think I always hoped I was funny because a lot of people in my family were. I was never very sure until people started laughing at me at school. I liked that they were laughing with me, but I'm suspecting it was at first and it became with over a period of time. So you like to keep your friends entertained at school? 
definitely. I went to Hasman Inn in the sort of late 80s, where it was a very different school from the one it is now. It's excellent and full of education. And it was a lot more sort of messing around and banter. So that element of it suited me quite well. I wasn't that into the studying and I was more into the singing Les Miserables on tables in the middle of lessons type of behaviour. A pain in the neck, I think. And you, you came from a comedy background? Not really. If anything, I came from a musical theatre background. I was involved in musical theatre groups and choirs from when I was very, very young. I was always in school choirs and we sang in all different places in old age homes and we did charity concerts and stuff. And I kind of always wished that I'd have a career in that area. But it wasn't a thing in my family. Everyone was very academic, except for actually my aunt, who is a music journalist, quite well-known music journalist and the professor of punk and reggae at New York University, Vivian Goldman, quite a character. But everyone else was super academic. So I don't think it was part of the consciousness of my family to think of a career in the arts. So it wasn't so much discouraged as just not part of the dialogue so I just assumed that wasn't a route but I always found a way of kind of having it in my life so even when I did my gap year when I left school I was with a group of very like-minded friends and we used to muck around doing improv sessions and telling jokes and karaoke and being probably quite irritating to anyone in the vicinity so I did that in my year and then I did lots of other things in between but always came back to something with the arts in every kind of job I did. So how would you describe yourself now in terms of you're a comedian? I am a comedian. Do they use, they use that word comedian anymore? Less so. They've become sort of a neutral word, I yes. think, now. Comedian is more used when people are discussing the fact of how women are perceived in comedy rather than right. the day-to-day job. And in fact, most people just refer to themselves as comics. But as oh, an oh. avid collector of the eagle as a child, I find that a bit odd. So I'd say I'm quite a few things, really. I'm a theatre director and a playwright. And I'm also a comedian and a speaker. And I think at any given point in time, I'm focusing on the one that's in interesting me at that moment or whatever opportunity has come up at that moment. So currently I'm a comedian and maybe after Edinburgh I'll either be more of a comedian or possibly a lot less of one. Who inspired you and who inspires you now? Ooh, that's a very... Have you got favourites? question. I really, really loved Victoria Wood. Yeah, I think she, she was a had superstar. Everything I'm excited about in comedy, in that it was observational but quirky, and she could do that pathos thing of talking about things that were absolutely at the same time hilarious and tragic, and you're okay to laugh with it. You get permission. I do see the permission to laugh at something that's not. It was what I'm often struck with is how I'm sounding my age now, really sounding my age, is how sweary and leery and rude some Mm. of the comics are nowadays, Mm. and quite often it's just a little samey because there's only so many rude jokes that you can kind of hear without rolling your eyes and it stops being risque and starts actually becoming boring in itself. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing because I'm currently, because I'm working on my solo show, so I've been going around the open mic circuit doing little bits here and there. You work it through and then you tweak it and you do it the next night somewhere else slightly different until you've got it exactly how you want it. And that means you get to see a lot of new up and coming acts and established acts doing their new stuff. And you hear a lot of different comedy voices. And there are definitely people who are just sweary because they think it's big and clever. And then there are people who use language really, really carefully. And when there's a swear word in it, it has a specific function in that joke. And I'm 
actually far more, probably far more sweary in real life than I am on stage. Not that I'm a very sweary person, but I have got one story that has got a swear word in it because that's what the person said to me and it makes yeah. sense in the story. And I was doing a shawl, a big shawl gig a few months ago and we did a Q&A at the end and someone said something that would obviously lead into that anecdote. And as I was about halfway through, I thought I'm standing in front of the ark in a shawl Possibly can't use that word. So I toned it down massively to an unsweary version and the whole thing fell flat. So I think it's an interesting thing that sometimes you need something to tickle the audience at a particular point. I don't know if that's a good word to use, but <laughs> but I think when it's just gratuitous, you stop listening to the actual joke. You're not interested in the punchline. I certainly would agree with that with you. So is your act, it is some somewhat observational? Yes, I mean... Do you look at your family and think, that's really funny. I'm going to remember that. Well, do you, my do you family walk are hilarious. With, are they? So, yes. Do you walk around with your notepad half the time? sort of. I walk around with my notepad all the time. All the time. <laughs> I'm slightly twitchy, actually, about the fact that it's through the glass panel over here. You're and in I the can't studio touch and it. you can't touch it. Um, and that's something my best friend actually lives in America and she comes over two or three times a year. And her favourite thing is Tesco. And I always find that very funny that we go out. That's what she wants to do as our bonding night together. Go to the big Tesco somewhere and just walk up and down the aisles. And she always makes fun of the fact that I've got a notebook. And if she says something ridiculous or we see something funny happen, I have to get the notebook out and write my little thoughts about it so it is something so it is like a writer it's like any writer isn't it well it is I think someone described it as like a word magpie and I think that's true if someone says something that triggers something for you you want to get it down straight away so yes I do like to keep notes of that I think pretty much all the comedians I know have that in some way some on their phones and some in a physical notepads but I'd say you know I would describe it as maybe gentle Jewish whimsy at the moment it has I haven't really done a lot of Jewish material till the last few months when I decided to do the show now I've been going to random pubs in all different parts of London and talking to them about things they've possibly never heard before like Jewish anti-semitic tropes or the funeral arrangements that I would wish for after I die, which involve various Jewish practices. Or tonight we're going to be talking about Kol Isha, the idea of women singing or not singing in front of a male audience. And I have to try and make those ideas accessible because I don't want to just be a Jewish comedian. I am a Jewish comedian, but I don't want to just perform for a Jewish audience. So this show that you're bringing... To Edinburgh, you said? I am, and to Manchester. And to Manchester. Tell us a bit about that one. Is it just you and how long? And tell us a bit about it. It's, um, yeah, it's my debut solo show. It's called It's No Job for a Nice Jewish Girl. And how did you get that title? It's got got to be a bit of story behind that one. It's really just when I tell people what I do, they look on their faces in the community versus outside the community, particularly if they know me and they know that I'm a religious person. They can't really fathom how I can kind of juggle that sort of life with a religious life. And that's, I guess, what the show is about, the idea of integrating the different parts of your world into one. And for me, it stems from the, coming from a family with a refugee and immigrant grandparents and great-grandparents, which I guess a lot of your audience will identify with, and a lot of people outside the community now in Britain will identify with, and how that impacts on you, the feeling of not quite necessarily fitting in, because you have more than one identity, depending on who you're with and where where you go. I remember thinking about the fact that one of my grandparents, my German grandparents, that their home, they felt very British. They were very keen on on how British they were and proud of being naturalised as British. But their home always felt 
slightly European, like it didn't feel like an English space. And you'd have people coming in and all talking English, but with very different accents. So I found that really interesting. And that kind of made me think a lot about where I fit in. Comedian Rachel Krieger talking to arts editor Kate Fulton there about her new show, It's No Job for a Nice Jewish Girl. For more information about show dates and times, then head to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's schmooze. Remember, we live stream our schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British summertime. The address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And we'll try and read out some of those comments as and when we get them. And it's just one of a number of ways that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can always email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, one thing that is very clear from this episode of The Jewish Views is that there is no shortage of generosity in the world. Our next guest further demonstrates this. Malcolm Shafron, Honorary Secretary of the LTFUC, or London Taxi Drivers Fund for Underprivileged Children. He and his colleagues have been raising money for a number of different causes, including a new specialist shower unit at Norwood's Buckets and Spades Care Home. As I mentioned before, community editor Diana Toman is away this week, so I've been lucky enough to speak to Malcolm. And I started by asking him to tell us a bit about the organisation itself. Next year is our 90th anniversary. So what we are is a voluntary organisation of London taxi drivers, licensed London taxi drivers. There's 13 of us, including two ladies, two lady taxi drivers. We meet once a month where we assess whatever appeals have come into us. And we organise outings and buying equipment for various people, organisations, whoever appeals to us really, this is what we do. And we assess our appeals. Sometimes we get appeals for a couple of hundred pounds. Sometimes we get appeals for equipment costing thousands. And at our monthly meetings, we assess what we're going to do with the money that we're given and how we give it. We're very tight with our spending we're proud of the fact that our expenses as long as i've been on the committee which is over 40 years has never been more than two percent in expenses so we're very proud of that don't think anybody can match that and how did you get involved yourself you say you've been involved for over 40 years which to which i have to say impossible (laughs) but just what can i say i'm fluent in schmooze but in all seriousness How did you first get involved? Well, when I became a cab driver in 1969, I'd never heard of the Children's Fund. But after a year or so, I started hearing about these outings that cab drivers did. And I said to uh, my wife, Evelyn, that it'd be nice if we could get involved. And we did. We used to go on the South End outing primarily, which is what the fund is famous for. And we'd done that for a few years and, and loved it. And I thought it'd be nice to get more involved and maybe join the committee if I could because we had two children and they were both fortunately healthy and didn't have anything wrong and we both thought it'd be a lovely idea to do something for other children who didn't have as much so we used to go to the AGMs every year sat in the front to get noticed 
<laughs> which we did. And, and it worked. And it worked. <laughs> and we got invited. Well, I mean, I got invited, obviously, along with Evelyn, to maybe join up. And that was in 1976. And tell us a bit about how the money is raised. Because Is this just from fares from the cabs? No, no. We do have collecting boxes in the cabs, at, mainly at Christmas time. We're not really allowed to put collecting boxes in the cab at any other time. But we do carry brochures in the cab so people can see who we are and what we are. As I say, there's only 13 of us on the committee. There are no other cab drivers have got anything like this. So, you know, there's 25,000 cab drivers and 13 of us have got brochures and stuff. But other than that, we get legacies. For instance, Ted Heath, he left us a legacy. People like that. We get lots of help from people like Trevor Nunn and other various famous people, others not so famous as well. And we raise money via sponsorship. When we do our South End outing, we raise money for about four months previous to the outing. We write to all the various companies on our list, worshipful companies, uh, anybody really, SO, anybody. We send out hundreds of these letters. We've got a sponsorship chairman who does that. And at the end of it, when we eventually go to South End, we've normally raised about 15 grand towards the trip. So that's one way we raise money. The other ways are dances, where we have tombolas and raffles. Don't do quiz nights so much, but nevertheless, at other places, we find people have donated to us. People have a, a 50th birthday party, a cab driver, and they don't want any presents. So the, all the money is donated to us. And that's that's the type of thing we do, and that's how we... We get our money together and we do send out appeals to other people as well. Sometimes it's a a yes and sometimes it's a no. Well, let's talk about one of those yeses because in particular we're here because you have been raising money for Norwood, their bucket and spade home, needed new shower facilities, I believe. And the fund has provided the means for that to happen. So tell us how you first heard about that appeal. Well, it was an appeal that actually came to me, just for, just a letter. And because of our connection with Norwood, which is how the fund all started in 1928, when we took children, well, not me personally, but when the fund took uh, children from Norwood to the zoo. Because of that connection, we thought it would be lovely to rekindle that connection. I then passed the letter, the appeal letter, onto our appeals officer, Colin, and he took over from there. And we didn't raise money specifically for this. We, I mean, we've obviously got reserves. And at our monthly meeting, we discussed it and decided it would be a lovely idea to buy this shower cradle for them, which we presented to them last week. That's really how it all started. And our connection now is back with Norwood. Not that it ever went away, but we'd never heard from them for quite a few years. But we were dealing with Ravenswood as well, which obviously is sort of part of a, a Norwood connection. But the shower cradle we saw, it's not a very big piece of equipment, but apparently it's they've already been using it when we already presented it. And it's transformed the children's lives who use it. So and how did it make good. you feel when you saw that installed and you recognised that it was yeah. through the work your committee had done? How did that make you feel? Well, I came home and I said to Evelyn, I, I really felt very humble, not only because of that, but listening to the two people who run the home, the, the work they do and, and what we did really was just just a small part of it. I mean, we got the easy bit. The people who run it have got the real hard job. But I came out of there and 
yeah, I felt very humble. And just to clarify, the fund is not necessarily just for Jewish charities, is it? No, do work no, for not, everyone. Oh, yeah, not at all, no. It's, it's a very small part, actually, is Jewish funding. We do get various appeals from people in Stanford Hill, not very often, but every year people write to us and, and sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't. But I would think probably 90 to 95% is, is non-Jewish help that we can give. And even the people on the Children's Fund, the committee themselves, whereas at one time in 1928 it was all Jewish people on the committee, now it's sort of half and half. So it's a good mix. Malcolm Shafrone, Honorary Secretary of the London Taxi Drivers Fund for Underprivileged Children, talking to me there about the work the organisation does and how it's managed to provide specialist shower equipment for the Buckets and Spades Norwood Care Home. And on our website, we've put a link to a video from British Pathé taken from the 1950s, which demonstrates just how far back the relationship between the two organisations actually goes. So do have a look. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Tony Honigberg and me today is founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and retired audio book reader, Denise Assassin. The subject is based on the horrific sights we've witnessed over the past week. I'm, of course, referring to not just the fire at the Grenfell Tower in West Kensington, but the other fire on Golders Green Road at the Case Supermarket. Both incidents affected people in the same way. One just happened to be on a more devastating scale. The parallels are simple. Both occasions saw the community and I don't necessarily mean that in a Jewish sense, rally round and help those affected. So it got us thinking about community spirit. We, as a people, are bound by the knowledge that no matter what we are, one big community. So what does that mean to us? Laura, let's start with you. The work you do with Mitzvah Day alone absolutely encompasses that sense of community spirit, doesn't it? Well, I hope it does, yes. I mean, that's very much what we aim to do. But I think I have to start off saying something about this fire because I think we've all been absolutely horrified by what we've seen and the scale of it and the fact that it's so visible on our television screens. It's sort of like the sort of horror you can hardly imagine that you maybe only normally see in films and in this case it's real. So I have to start off by just saying how much we feel for those people and the upside, if there can be an upside to that sort of horror, is the way that the community, whoever that may be, has come together. And the outpouring of love and support and care, which has been quite overwhelming. I, I hope that it makes a difference to the people who are involved. I'm sure that it makes a difference to the people who are doing the caring because there's something very comforting about doing something all together and making a difference to other people. And this is just it doing it in a really very acute, very, very unpleasant situation. So, yes, there is an upside, which is it does, it does promote community spirit in the same way as Borough Market did as well, the same sort of thing, and Manchester. Yes, that's true. Denise, what do you, what do you think? Well, I very much agree with what Laura's just said. The community 
did rally round most wonderfully. And the outer community also rallied round. I know somebody who was a, a doctor, and he went straight to the hospitals that they were sent to. So that is a community spirit, is it not? Yes, it is, absolutely. But it's the one thing that we've been saying is absolutely true. But in fact, the disaster is so huge that mm. is the community really able to help to that extent? We're in a difficult situation here because we don't we don't actually have the figures regarding the local authority, the local council, to know exactly how much they've put in and what they put in until we have the results from the fire department and from the inquiry that's going on. We really don't know anything that's being used in this. We're coming off slightly from uh, talking about the community spirit, of course, but, but the community spirit has been, as Laura says, has been wonderful. I know Boreham Wood Synagogue sent out an email for collection and anybody that's got anything. I think Holland Park, which was the closest synagogue, was straight mm. there mm. with doing things for the local community. Yes, in fact, on the radio news, on the BBC radio news, they said something about that all the different religions had done a tremendous amount of great and wonderful things mm. at the far. So the challenge for me, the interesting thing about this with regard to community spirit is the sustainability of the community spirit. So we've seen a few terrible things recently. We've seen the Manchester, uh, the Manchester attack. We've seen the Borough Market attack. We've now seen the fire. And in each case, people come rushing in to help in the most magnificent way. However... Actually, what we need is people who are prepared to long-term build community spirit. And that's a very different mm. thing. And what we need to see is out of these disasters come long-term community cohesion projects, people pulling together. And we need also to live in a world where it doesn't take this, it doesn't take a fire like this to bring the people together. You, know, you can understand when something really terrible happens, people come together. But let's hope these things don't happen very often we still need to find ways to get people to come along. And there are a few initiatives that I'm aware of. For example, the churches do night shelters. And a lot of churches do night shelters, you know, during the winter mm. months where people come who've got nowhere to live and have somewhere warm and they have some food and they have some counselling and they have some clean clothes. And, and that's community spirit on a sustainable level. In the Jewish community, for example, we have drop-ins synagogues run drop-ins there's four synagogues run drop-ins for refugees and that's a long-term commitment to long-term helping people keeping people fed helping them with rail cards and legal advice and toys for the children that's community spirit well and also um, i mean things like nappies i heard that on the radio as well so it was sort of very ordinary things but very important things Absolutely. have also been given by people in a community but not necessarily from that community that's right and but the thing i'm saying is that people are doing wonderful things now the challenge is how do you make these things long term yes because in actual fact when there isn't a disaster people don't give so much this is what you're saying no well, once once the disaster's over i see what laura's saying is how can we keep this community spirit going mm -hmm. 
That which, one which I can't is, answer. Which is, well, which well, is, well, that's well, well I, I don't know how we go. I mean, so all of the things like the church, the church shelters, and the food and banks, the Salvation Army, yeah. all of those sorts yeah. of things do keep them going. Mm. That's what they do. Those are real people doing real long-term, sustainable community spirit things that keep people involved. Another thing that's very interesting is this month's Ramadan. And there's an enormous amount of um, of work at the moment going on to use to use Ramadan as a way to build community spirit. So lots of synagogues, I think about eight synagogues this year, are holding iftars, and an iftar is the meal you have at the end of the fast mm. day, holding iftars in synagogues. That's marvellous. Um, and that's about community spirit. That's about mm. long-term, sustainable, bringing people together, not just because there's a crisis, but because there's a need to bring people together. And that sort of thing's wonderful. Yes, well, the, Ram- the Ramadan, things are, uh, Ramadan things are being... Uh, have been advertised on the tube and everywhere. You see people suggesting that you should join in on this. What concerns me is after the month of Ramadan has ended, will that community spirit then continue between the shawls and and the the local communities? Or will it suddenly come to a stop? Well, sadly, finance is really behind the whole thing. It yeah. was what I heard. I mean, not obviously not completely, but they can't do anything unless they have the finance to do what they have to but do. But it also has to. to it also has to be organised, doesn't it? I mean, as you organise oh, yes. it. Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't buy the the finance argument. It's not about finance. It's about will. Yes, it's people wanting it, to do it. It's about will. Yes. Do people really want to do this stuff? Because there's an awful lot of things you can do that don't cost much money. I mean, mitzvah day, you can run projects that don't cost much money. The challenge is getting people to want to do mm. it, getting people able and sort of geared up to be able to do things together and instilling a sense in our community, by which I don't just mean our Jewish community, I mean our local communities, a sense that people really want to bring people together. So how does one start doing that? You do it, you you know how to do it, but how does somebody hearing what you're saying say, okay, I'd like to help all the time. How do they do that? You go and get involved. You get involved in a, a local church shelter. You get involved in... Most of our schools have got ongoing projects all the time you know shuls are doing things like collecting money for for world jewish relief or they Mm. are running events there's a maccabi fun run there's all sorts of things that our community our community is blessed blessed with community building activities but generally that keeps us within our own community we're trying to expand to the wider community of the local area if you like i mean (laughs) you're speaking to somebody who you know buys (laughs) into that completely you know and without preaching about mitzvah day that's what we do we get people from all different faith Mm. groups and all different communities coming together to do it and if people want to get involved then they should be persuading their own jewish community to reach out and set up initiatives where people can come in and I do things together i completely agree with what you say about community it's quite difficult to reach out to people you don't know so it's very easy for me to sit here and say yes you can do it through mitzvah day or through your shul mm. or whatever but i always say that 
let's say you decide that you want to reach out to the local Muslim community where you live. And as you say, Clive, how, what do you do? Well, what you do is you it's very difficult because mm. you can't go and knock on the door at the yeah. local mosque and say, hello, Mr. Imam, I'd like to come and get involved. It's, you know, that's not doable. So you have to have structure and you have to have projects which enable people, which facilitate mm. this sort of thing. Now, what the fire has done is it's sort of artificially created that situation yes Yes. but hopefully in a few weeks time those people will no longer need food handouts and they're no longer need to be sleeping in the local church because how awful would that be if as a community we haven't found a way to rehouse those people but the goodwill that's out there and the love that people are showing and the care that local people are showing, mm. you know, we should be able to bottle it, shouldn't oh, yes. we? Yeah, we should oh, if only we could. Bottle that would be wonderful. This is simplifying this too much, perhaps, but where I live, there are an awful lot of local grocery shops which are all owned by Muslims, or most of them are. So should one go into a, a Muslim shop that one deals with regularly and say to them, look, we would like to help. Can you tell us how we can help those poor Muslims who are in a in a bad position? How can we help by giving them food? What food? That's a very good whatever. idea. That's a way. Or, go, or go to one's local synagogue and say to them, are we doing enough? Well, that, I think, is, is a more realistic way of doing it. Yeah, but yeah. who would um, do it? Who would be the one who did it? You, somebody like you. Well, I, I think there's lots of people out there who want to do it. There's lot, we are very, very lucky in our Jewish community that it is filled with people who want to give back. Yes. We, are, mm. we couldn't well, be this is more how blessed, we could we, brought up this with thing. people yeah. who, yeah. Want to, who want to look after other people, mm. who want to do, go donate money, who want to donate goods, who want to donate their time. I mean, our community is based on that whole ethos. Absolutely. As indeed our many other, other communities yes. we don't have a monopoly on that we, we, well, the, the only problem I see here or a problem that I see here is there are so many people now moving away from religion that they don't have that little community of their own mm. you know I, I spe- I've spoken to people who say well we go dog walking so we've got our little community but it's not really a community as such you, you meet other dog walkers but mm. you don't really hang out together if you like you what know, about form- schools? Schools are. Uh, but surely, way. surely dog walkers could get together and well, they say sh- there's something do. we should do. They could yes. do. I don't know whether they would, but they could do. Yes, yes. absolutely. I mean, why shouldn't they? Mm. A community no, is agree. a very interesting thing. Like, what do we mean by community? Mm. As you say, you have a community of dog walkers, you've got a community of people who are members of a shul, you've got a community of people who are members of a political party locally, you've got a community of people who have got together to fundraise for the local library. You know, there's all sorts of things oh, yes. that create community. It's that sort of ephemeral thing that we all want to be part of. And and the challenge is how you find mm. the community that you feel comfortable in. And then yes. in the context of this, how that community then uh, makes a difference to the wider world that it operates in. I've got a, a message on Facebook from Alfie Ferguson. It says, every friendship has only ever been started through a conversation. Be brave. People talk and extend your hand. That yeah. seems, unfortunately, our time is up. That seems a very good point at which to end the discussion. Yes. And uh, I hope people will do as you say. My thanks to our guests, founder of Mitzvah Day Law Remarks and retired audiobook reader Denise Assison. 
please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter we are at jewishviewsuk. And don't forget those details are on our website jewishviews.co.uk. And it's time now for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK. It's been a wonderful month, if you're a Zionist. I spent a large part of it in Israel with Mizrahi for the celebrations for Yom Shalim, for the 50th year since the unification of Jerusalem, part of visiting all our wonderful young men and women learning institutions to come back to England, to university, with a new vigor and passion for their Judaism and for their Zionism. But there's a lesson to be learned. In this week's Sedra, we have a word, one of the most depressing and disastrous words in Jewish history. And that word is Ephes. And it's translated, I guess, as the word but. Because this is the week, the first week of this week, we were told to go and view the land of Israel. We were on the borders, about to go in, tremendous excitement, the Jewish people. We'd left Egypt, got the Torah, about to go into Israel. And the spies are sent to spy out the land. And they come back with their report. And they said, it's a wonderful land, milk and honey, incredible land, but... And then they listed a litany of problems and reasons why they weren't going to be successful. And I feel today in the 21st century, we might be guilty of the same thing. Israel's a wonderful country, the high tech, the religion, the people we've returned after 2,000 years. But, and we tend to be overly critical. I'm not saying Israel's perfect. It has its problems. But when the mainstream media and various political institutions are so hell-bent on demonizing the state of Israel, we as the Jewish people have to never say Ephes have to realize, yes, there's issues we've got to deal with, we've got to try and fix. But most of all, we are proud Zionists, amazed at what Israel has achieved, amazed at how it is literally shaping the world with innovation, curing the world of diseases, leading the world in high-tech developments, and allowing us, for the first time in 2,000 years, to go back to our homeland, to learn, to pray, to live It's a miracle of the modern age. Yes, it's not perfect, but we have to instill in our kids, in our families, in our community, an absolute united pride in Medina Israel, the state of Israel. Its capital is Jerusalem, the home of the Jewish people. Think anybody listening to the wise words of Rabbi Andrew Shaw there would find it hard to disagree that as Jews there is a responsibility to be proud of everything that Israel achieves, but also maybe to recognise that it isn't without fault. But then again, which country is? All the same, thank you very much to Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi UK with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thank you very much to our guests, Sarah Benbasat, telling us about rallying the community together for those affected by fire. To comedian Rachel Krieger, don't forget to look at our website for her forthcoming performance dates. Malcolm Shafron telling us about the work of the LTFUC. Thanks to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Sue Greenberg and Tony Honickberg. 
You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, and you'll also find a link to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the Studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.